This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello for the wild community, Ayana here. And before we jump into our conversation with Ulrich Eckelman on saving the blue heart of Europe, I wanted to share a few updates. I'm ecstatic to share that our first seeds are sprouting for the One Million Redwoods project. This spring, while our trees are growing, we've been creating an incredible research team to develop a biomimetic reforestation plan, where we'll begin implementing our biodiversity enhancement test plots to help the entire forest community. So if you'd like to stay up to date with our research and get involved, sign up for our newsletter on our website. Also, if you're a musician and you'd like your music showcased on the podcast, submit your work at forthewild.world slash submit dash your dash tracks. And lastly, rate us on iTunes and please consider making a donation as our podcast is entirely community supported. Oh, and one more thing. There is some uncensored profanity in this episode, so it may not be suitable for children. All right, now on to the show. What I'm, you know, trying to achieve with Riverwatch is uh, we're a small organization. We try to be flexible. We, we try to be very clear. We're against these dams. The silence is broken by somebody crying, trying to be heard, never a word. Always the attitude, sort out your own. Always alone, wishing for something the world is denying. Out in the wilderness, somebody's crying. Somebody wishing for something to happen, wishing to tell, wishing to help. Someone was listening, someone who cared, never despaired. Someone to lean on and someone to trust. Who needs your assistance and finds your disgust? Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we will be speaking about the last wild rivers in Europe in the Balkan Peninsula. Rivers are the circulatory system of the planet. They are not singular entities fixed in space, but are networks of branching tributaries that meander over long periods of time, shaping vast geologies and landscapes. What a dam does to a river is akin to what a clogged artery is in the heart does to a human. A heart attack is not isolated in the heart, but shocks the whole body, often leading to death. Similarly, a single dam on a small tributary will reap devastation that extends far beyond its banks. Connectivity is everything when it comes to the health of river systems, so the fact that 90% of the world's rivers will be fragmented by at least one dam in the next 15 years, with 3,700 new dams proposed or under construction globally, is truly gut-wrenching. Today we will be journeying into the Balkan Peninsula, a sub-region of the Mediterranean that cradles the last wild rivers in Europe. In such an overdeveloped world, it's amazing that of the 35,000 kilometers of Balkan rivers, 30% remains pristine and 50% remains very healthy. Yet the rivers of this region, harboring immense freshwater diversity, are under assault. With close to a 1,000 existing dams and 3,000 more projected to be built, hardly any Balkan river will be left untouched in just a few years if hydropower development is not stopped in its tracks. To talk about these last wild rivers of Europe, 
We welcome Ulrich Eckelmann. Ulrich is a German ecologist and conservationist who has been living in Vienna, Austria for 29 years. He worked for the World Wildlife Fund Austria for more than 17 years until 2007, being primarily concerned with river conservation and restoration. He has been campaigning internationally against the construction of hydropower plants, such as dams along the Danube and the Ilsu Dam project on the Tigris River in Turkey. Between 2010 and 2012, he produced a film, Climate Crimes, a documentary about the abuse of climate protection and consequences of so-called green energies. In 2012, he founded the Vienna-based conservation organization Riverwatch, a society for the protection of rivers. In addition, he is freelancing for the Manfred Hermsen Stiftung, an environmental protection foundation based in Bremen, Germany. In November 2014, he was awarded the Great Binding Prize for Nature Conservation, and in June 2015, he received the Wolfgang Staub Prize for Nature Conservation. Well, welcome, Ulrich. Yeah, thank you for having me. You've been a river defender for decades, and I'm so honored to join in conversation with you today around your current work on the Save the Blue Heart of Europe campaign. And I'm trying to imagine the beauty of the Balkan rivers as they're unfamiliar to me, and I'm sure many of our listeners as well. So I'd love to open with an introduction to this region. Would you begin by taking us down a specific river or tributary in the Balkans that is dear to you? Yeah, that's difficult because there are so many different rivers. I mean, what the region we are speaking about um, is from Slovenia down to Greece, so that there are a lot of countries. It's basically ex-Yugoslavia, Albania, Greece, and Bulgaria. And I've been working on river protection and restoration for all my life, I would say. And I've been mostly in what we call Central Europe, like Germany, Switzerland, Austria, and Spain, and these countries. And when I saw these rivers on the Balkans for the first time with my intense eyes, I was really amazed. I didn't know that that was still existing. You know, sometimes you have an idea, you, you know, theoretically that these rivers should be in a good shape, but that is a difference when you see them. For example, when you go to Albania, there's one big river, it's called the Viosa. Um, this is probably the last big wild river in Europe. It flows 270 kilometers without any artificial obstacles. So no dams, no dikes, no levees, no nothing. It flows as free as always. She always did that river. And not only that, but also the tributaries. So all the little rivers and streams that run into the river are also free. And that is completely unique. And that is an experience. You, you suddenly are confronted with something that you call a river, but looks completely different to other rivers that we are used to see in Central Europe. And that's so beautiful. But then you go to Bosnia-Herzegovina, for example, which is like a six, seven, sometimes 10 hours drive with a car. You have crystal clear rivers, uh, waterfalls where you think that could be South America. Um, you have alpine rivers, you have large floodplain forests with eagles nesting in the trees. It's all there. And when you look underwater, if you could look underwater, or you, you would be there with, with the fishing rod, there is a tremendous amount of fish. It's the fish hotspot in all of Europe. Scientifically speaking, it's the trout hotspot in the world. There's no place in the world with a higher diversity of trout species. So you have all these softmouth trout, um, mamorata trout, so these different kinds. So it's the the beauty and the diversity of the rivers is reflected by the species, and that's still there. You know, that's it's a little bit unbelievable that we're in the 21st century where we basically have fucked up the world. Um, we are trying, you know, our economy is driving even the last edges of the planet to something that would be destroyed. But here, almost in Central Europe. These things are still untouched to a very large extent. It's actually a gift to the planet, I would say, to all of us. Ulrich, I couldn't agree more. These last remaining 
breadcrumbs of wild places, of places that are allowed to live freely are gifts and we can't sit back while they become destroyed. Right. There are so many places here that have been damaged by dams and large dams, small dams, levees, like you were talking about. And it's interesting because big dams are really becoming obsolete. And luckily, there yeah. a lot of them are being dismantled throughout developed countries. For there's actually no longer any scientific debate over if they do more harm than good. So I'm interested to hear more about this global trend of large dam decommissioning and how the constellation of small hydropower dams and diversions proposed in the Balkans fit into this narrative. Well, this, this dam removal initiative uh, or this little movement is up to now more a U.S. phenomenon, I would say. It's slowly coming to Europe, but very slowly. On a global scale, there is still, the road goes into the other direction. There's still built so many large-scale dams, especially in Africa, in Asia and Himalayans, and, and also a few on the Balkans of plant. So there is these two controversial trends that in, in some countries, you know, people are aware and authorities are aware of the bad impact of the dams. And, you know, you've made mistakes in the 50s and the 60s and you, you know better now, you should act better. But then you have the other movement, which is called green energy, fight global warming. And that is a very, very strong movement. And even NGOs, like my old NGO, WWF, but also Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, everyone is, is shouting for more renewables, which is in principle correct, but which opens the sluices and the gates for all these economic companies and for all these politicians that follow the old road that gives them a window of opportunity to do all the dirty things they couldn't have done before. Because, you know, when, when somebody says, well, the dam is bad, for example, then there's certainly someone in the room that says, you know, but it's, it's better than coal. It helps the climate. So there's always some, it's like a killing argument. And what, what a lot of people have lost here, even in my NGO community, is the ability to look down on the ground, what happens on the ground. Whenever we talk about environmental protection, most of us look literally up in the air and, and think about CO2 equivalents or something. But they're not thinking about fish, not birds, not space, not, not even people that are affected. They're victims, but for something like they call a, a higher and a better good. So that's climate protection, which is not true, in fact. I mean, there are so many arguments against it. We all know these arguments, but it's like emotionally driven we we have been you know these these arguments that hydro is green and better than this or better than that is so deeply rooted in some of the societies and hydro is very old is a very old technique very 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 old so there is there's lobby groups very old lobby groups and they're very they have a very good network into the into the administrative bodies into the political arenas um, to, to get these projects through. And what we are fighting on the Balkans is actually, we're doing this for the Balkan rivers, of course. We're trying to make it visible what is happening. Um, but it's happening everywhere else in Europe, at least. The only difference is that in most parts of Europe, you don't have these beautiful, wonderful, intact rivers anymore. And you, in, rest, in Austria or in, in Spain or in Italy or in France, we have mostly channelized rivers and then you dam them. That is bad, but it's not as bad as you dam a pristine river. That's something like a big step or a big shock for everything, you know. And this is what is what we call the blue heart of Europe. It's in the Balkans. You have these rivers. And this is something which we have with the knowledge of the 21st century. So we should avoid all mistakes. And what we are trying with the campaign is on the first hand, make the dimension of the attack visible. So we are not talking about a dam here and the protection of that river or this river. We put on our lens, on our, or what do you say, on a camera, 
like a wide angle lens and we showed the whole threat in which is about 3000 hydropower plants. This is enormous. Literally every little stream would be affected. And even hydropower people would say this. Oh, no, this is too much. This is, you know, we shouldn't go for all of this. This is one. And then we on the second level, we try to make the people on the ground. We help. We try to help them. There is so many opposition. Mostly the, the people, the locals, the local community who live along the rivers are opposing the dams because different to, for example, Austria, people depend on those rivers. You know, for example, in Albania, when you're in Albania, there's a little village, let's, it's called Bencher, for example. There is one or 200 people living in the village, but 4,000 sheep and goats. And all these sheep and goats, every morning, they walk uphill to, into the mountains to eat. But when they go, they, they drink in the river. And when they come down in the afternoon, in the late afternoon, they drink again. And now there are dam plans to divert all the river from their place. So this village would be left with, with a dry riverbed. And that would mean the animals wouldn't have something to drink. That would be the end of the village, actually. So, and there's a lot of other people who use the water for drinking purposes. You know, they go fishing, all these things. And that is, and we try to, to help them, to give them a voice. And at the same time, try to make them proud of what they have. Because most people on the Balkans, no matter where, are not aware that their river is something extraordinary. For them, it was always the river. They, can't, they cannot compare. They don't know what it looks like in other places in Europe. So we can we can tell them this is enormously beautiful. And therefore, it's so important that even when I go there from the outside, you know, or my team, we go there from the outside, from Germany, from Austria, from, from France, wherever, you know, they suddenly realize, hey, why the hell are you coming here? And I say, yeah, because this is so incredibly beautiful and you should protect it. And together we might be able to find something that you can make a living with these rivers. For example, you know, promote fly fishing. It's the best place in the world for fly fishing, but there is very, very little at the time. Or this, what I said, told you about the Vyosa in Albania, that must become the first wild river national park in Europe. This is the only place in whole Europe where you can establish such a thing. When you do that, tourists from all over Europe, at least, would go there to see a wild river. And that would bring income to the people. And that, again, was the reason why all the villages along this 200 and something kilometers stretch, uh, the mayors signed that they don't want dams, but they want this national park because they see they love their river on one hand, of course, but they have to live. And this ecotourism or whatever, if you do it in the right way, there is a chance. I know there's always this risk with the, the tourism, but, you know, I, I'd rather go for the risk then for the dams, because if you build the dams, that's it. That that's over then. And then if, if for example, the Viosa, they would build huge reservoirs, then everything is flooded. The, the fields of the communities are flooded. Uh, you turn this dynamic river. When you see that there's, it's more than one and a half miles wide with gravel banks, uh, sand banks, uh, floodplain forests. It's it's really great, and this would attract the people, and the dam would destroy all of that. And there's. So many things that people don't know, you know, when I tell them about what a dam does, they, they basically see a reservoir and think, oh, okay, maybe I can, there's a lot of fish in there. But every day, twice per day, they release the water from the reservoirs to, in order to produce peak electricity. So downstream of that dam, you have twice a day a flood wave towards the sea. Nothing survives that. Nothing survived that. You know, ecosystems are can deal with floods because that's part, an essential part of a, of a river ecosystem. But these flush things twice a day or once a day, whatever, is no, nobody can deal with that. So they we try also to to make them understand what is coming when they when we don't stop the dam. And so far, you know, I would say ninety five percent of Whenever we were there, no matter which country on the Balkans, people on the ground were completely happy and supportive. And they take a lot of hope in us that we save their rivers and actually their lives. 
I want to go back to when you were speaking about this, we could call it greenwashing of dams. And you recently produced a documentary called Climate Crimes about the consequences of green energy. So thank you so much for bringing visibility to this. And I think it's absolutely essential that we constantly question how exactly we are transitioning away from fossil fuels. Are we reinforcing the same power structures? Who are we displacing now that we are building hydropower dams instead of oil rigs? You know, our our solar-powered lifestyle is just as consumptive and human supremacist as our petrol-powered ones. You know, this is a thread we have touched on many times in the show, yet we've never fully delved into the devastation that hydropower brings. So I'm hoping that you could speak a little bit more about the far-reaching ecological and cultural impacts of hydroelectric dam and diversion projects. You mentioned about the ecological effects and the cultural effects and people on the dam, but maybe if you could explain a little bit more of just how quickly a landscape changes following the construction of a dam. And then maybe a second part to that question is, if you have anything to say regarding hydropower compared to solar power in terms of detrimental impacts. I mean, I start with the the hydropower question. Um, I think for most of the people, it's clear and obvious that large-scale dams are bad. You know, when you talk, talk about mega dams or large-scale dams, most people would agree in saying they are flooding the landscape, they're flooding the area of the people, they're changing the landscape. Um, but you know what? What they're not aware is it's not only changing the landscape from an active, dynamic, fluctuating river to a stable reservoir type, but they're blocking, of course, not only the migration routes of the, of the fish and other species, but the sediment transport. You normally... When you see from a picture perspective, uh, a, a river transports the gravel, the big gravel from the mountains, and they bring them down to the sea. And on that way, these big stones get smaller and smaller because they are hopping on the ground and they become smaller and smaller. And in the end, it's sand. A lot of sand in the ocean has been is, is there because of the rivers. They've been transporting it. If you build a dam, this is blocked. A UN study came with the conclusion that Today, about one-third of all the sediments in river systems are blocked behind dams. That leads to the erosion not only in the riverbeds below the dams, uh, that's called riverbed incision. So because the, the gravel is not there, but the water power is there, so the water is digging deeper and deeper into its own riverbed. We have rivers in Austria their riverbed below dams is seven meters. So what, what is that? It's 21 feet deeper than it was before. It's not only that river then so deep, but the groundwater level is following the level of the river. So the, the, the groundwater level in that city of Salzburg is 21 feet deeper than it was before the dam construction. So this is it's the whole landscape are drying out than even trees can't follow the water, the groundwater anymore with their roots. So you have a completely dry, wide area. It's not only the river itself, but the adjacent, um, the, the adjacent regions, you know, whether because of the, the, the groundwater. Then you, the, the water is polluted because uh, a river, a natural river, is the best sewage system you can have. All these little snails, all these little animals in there, uh, they clean the water naturally. When you build a dam and you have a stable condition, you know, you have, it's getting warmer, you, you, you have less oxygen, uh, less structure, so the, there's l- less animals in there, so you have bad water quality. And then you have these, these produce peak electricity with the big ones. You let them go down twice a day, this flood wave. And one more thing that, that fishermen know better than I do, Every few years, the big reservoirs, they have to be flushed. You don't get the gravel through, but near the dam site in the reservoir, there's a lot of mud. And the, the dam uh, owners, the electricity companies, they need to get that flushed away. So every two to four years, they're cleaning the reservoir. That means they open certain sluices in the dams when there's a higher water level and then let it out immediately. The whole 
a lot of water which sucks out then the mud. So the mud is being transported in a mud wave downstream, can take a day or more, and that kills all the fish and all the insects in the river because they can't breathe no more. It's so much sediments then suddenly, uh, it's like an avalanche or what, I don't know what, a landslide something. And they do that regularly to clean up the reservoir with the mud. So this is, these, the landscapes are completely destroyed. There's not a river anymore. That's only when we talk about one dam. But mostly you build, they say, the cataracts of dams. But that's what they call it. So dam after dam after dam. So this is actually, they turn rivers into a chain of dams. That is completely uh, the end then. I, what is very important for me and a very important point, talking about the Balkans, uh, about the 3,000 dams, about 90% of them are so-called small-scale dams. They're with less than 10 megawatt installed capacity. So that is another thing that people think small is beautiful. Well, they think big dams are bad, but small is beautiful somehow. So this is completely wrong because they are diversion types. What they do to a river is by no means better than the large dams. Because what you build, you build a wire or a dam, and then you divert the water through pipes to some place else. You take it away from the original uh, riverbed, leaving the old riverbed mostly dry. It's, it's like a vadi then, you know, like the Arabic word. This happens on the Balkan and is, is happening almost everywhere. And the problem with that is that you don't even produce electricity. You know, these little dams produce so little energy, so little electricity, that even the European Union now recommends to not build dams with less than 10 megawatt anymore because it doesn't make sense. And you have to know that when you want to build a dam, you need to have an infrastructure in place. You need to build roads, you need to build bridges, construct tunnels, um, you have to cut forests in order to build transmission lines, all of this. And on the Balkans, it's not like in the US or in other parts of Europe, there are already roads everywhere, more or less, but most of these valleys are completely pristine. You have forest down to the river valley, and there's, there's no road, nothing there. And in order to be able to build these diversion dams, you need to build all these roads. You do all the destruction in the nature. It's like you remember when you, when you think about the Amazon, for example, and when you see them, you know, they've built a new road, you see this fishbone model things, you know, we, where people, you know, live then everywhere around these roads. And it's, it's, it's pretty similar with, with these dams. It's, you have a dam, but then you have all this infrastructure, then other things are following people, you know, probably do poaching then. They poach different things because they have access to, to former remote areas. All these things come with the dams. And that is so frustrating on one side. And you say, Jesus, we are doing these mistakes in the 21st century, although we should know better. You mentioned the dam removal uh, procedures or uh, movements in the U.S. And, and here they're doing the old mistakes, although most people know better. Most people know better. But, you, you know, as I said, there's the old lobby groups for building large scale dams. And then there's a huge amount of corruption. Corruption is an important driving force. Uh, in the region, you know, they, they know how to deal with the decision makers. So it's all about, it's all about money making. So with these renewable uh, energy resources, we all want them to be built much more than they, we, we used to build them. So what the thing is, you get your, what we call feed in tariffs. So let me give an example. When you want to build, for example, you would build a dam, a hydropower plant in Bosnia, Herzegovina, for example, on a little river. You would calculate how much you must invest and how much you get for a kilowatt hour. That's the, the amount what comes out of it. Um, the normal price on the market is three euro cent per kilowatt hour when you produce electricity. But with this little money per kilowatt hour, your investment wouldn't work. But according to the countries and the EU, 
you get instead of three cent per kilowatt hour, you get 11 cent per kilowatt hour. So and this changes everything. You can make money with it. And who pays it? The difference? The, the consumer. So it's on the bill of the consumer. All the people who you know consume electricity and receive a bill, you have these additional su these subsidies included in your bill. So when you look at it from a different perspective, the people who fight the dams in the Balkans pay at the same time with their bills the construction of these dams. This is so weird, and that is why we have to fight a lot of fights, if you like. So we, we have to stop the big investments, the big financial institutions like the World Bank, the EBRD and others to invest in large scale dams. And we have to stop the subsidy system, at least for hydro, for small hydros. Only small hydro power plants receive subsidies. Large scale dams don't get that. These are very, very important pillars. Also in our campaign, we tackle that. And when you mentioned these, um, what we are doing, because we all ask for more renewables and that it opens the, the gates for destruction of nature, that is true. And hydro is, from my perspective, the worst in that because they have deteriorated the, the, the rivers globally so much already. The rivers paid their price already. They should be, from my perspective, there shouldn't be any hydropower plant built in the world. You know, this, this is it. We have different options now. And solar is an important option. I'm completely aware that there is a negative side on, you know, all the resources that you need for solar. Um, there is wind also. But I am from northern Germany originally, and our region is full of windmills. And that is, again, the doses of this is deciding whether it's healthy or killing. And in some places, in, even with in my hometown in, in Germany, it's too much. It's too much. There is no place you can go without windmills. And there's so many birds get killed in these, these wind farms. There's a few important things that I, that I would recommend. I know a lot of things. I don't know a lot of things. But if we are not tackling our growth system, if we are not turning that into a degrowth system, um, especially the so-called first uh, world countries, I am afraid there is no hope for nature. I'm very optimistic for, the, for a lot of humans um, because we can, to a certain extent, we can live without nature, uh, but the nature won't survive if we continue. If we consume as we consume uh, now, or we, you know, we even we consume more and we grow and grow, um, then it's hopeless, I'm afraid. Then sooner or later, we have to eat the world. And the first, we have to squeeze out then either people to make money out of them or nature. And nature is the easiest. So that's what we always done. And this is, I think that we have to start the discussion. I know a lot of people have already started the discussion, but even with my film, that was in the end when I showed all the the effects of so-called green uh, green energy sources like biodiesel when they when they're logging all these primeval forests in Borneo in Indonesia um, for palm oil or or whatever biogas whatever hydropower plants that is a lot of people are not aware that this is negative they think yeah but it's green so green 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 I think the NGOs have to stop bluntly asking for more renewables this is half it's is half a message because then then it's dumb it's only valuable if you say we have to change to renewables while we're reducing our consumption i don't know of any concept that proves that we can continue in a way to live and then have our energy provided by renewables there's no way we have to reduce you know, for example, in countries like Austria and Germany, we are not getting any closer to fight global warming. The opposite is true. You know, at the same time, we are we are fucking up the countries and the and the and the landscapes and the nature and the and the biodiversity. This has to be discussed. Even though, if I don't, some most people don't have an answer, but we have to discuss that and we have to look on the ground again. We have to learn 
to look on the ground again. And 15 years ago, when I was working with WWF, we were a lot of people in the organization and we knew about nature, actually nature. We knew about fish, birds, ecosystems, what we call now ecosystem services. We knew a lot of these things. And then through the climate change in our heads or in the, in the whole heads, they were, we changed the people. So bit by bit, there were more people who were working on climate change issues. They had no ideas about salmon or no idea about kingfishers or whatever. All they ever cared about was reduction of CO2 emission for whatever price. And this has to change. This has to change. We have to inform the people like through this podcast, you know, what is happening? Uh, they're pretending to do it for the good, but all they do is, is killing nature and threatening people. And you can see that perfectly on the Balkans because everyone says, you know, but it's green, but it's green hydro. And we try to open their eyes and open their brains and their hearts to, you know, have a look at it, have a look at it, what it's look like. Go there, go there and see with your own eyes how wonderful it is. And now it's, it's for example, it's, the Patagonia has, has, has produced that film called Blue Heart, uh, the premiere is next Saturday in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And then I hope that a lot of people will see that, not only to to see what happens on the Balkans, but then think about what is true on the Balkans is true everywhere in the world. I mean, what a dam does to a Balkan river, a dam does to a river in, in I don't know, in the, on the West Coast, wherever, yeah, in, in, in Africa, everywhere. It's physics. My goodness, you really spoke to my heart, especially the degrowth model. And it was Earth Day here a couple days ago. Honestly, a bit depressing to see what was being pushed out for Earth Day actions. And hardly any of it was about degrowth or lower your consumption of plastic. A lot of a lot of people were focusing on plastic, which of course is really important, but to continue to push green energies, especially NGOs like you were speaking about, to have that be the solution, to not look at the economy, to not look at our lifestyles, to not look at our consumption, to not look at the fact that the more and more people we have, especially with a developed world lifestyle, the less of everything else on this earth that we have because we eat the earth, like you were saying, we consume and it is such a huge debacle that we're in when so many groups, whether that's government groups or large NGOs or small NGOs even, or communities aren't actually talking about the depth and the complexity of the solutions. Gosh, going also back to what you were talking about with the subsidies, it's similar here in the United States where we are actually paying, our taxpayer dollars are actually paying for the logging of our last remaining old growth on our public lands. We are actually subsidizing the destruction of our last remaining wild places from logging, oil, mining, and etc. So it's shocking and disturbing and disgusting. And then the other part of going back to hydro, which I really was shocked about, was that not only do the hydropower projects displace people, plants, creatures, but they also aren't clean. They're not emission-free forms of energy production. And I was so astounded to read that the world's hydroelectric dams are responsible for as much methane emissions as Canada. So with large dams and reservoirs emitting 104 million metric tons of methane annually, which is 34 times more potent than carbon dioxide, and that these emissions are not even included in global greenhouse gas inventories. So that's just something that's completely washed over. It is. That's the world. You know, that's, that's the way it is. I do believe, in the end, in conflicts. I do believe in strategies that say, okay, we have our position. Maybe it's hopeless, but we stand here. And you have to run over me to build that dam, for example. I, I think that we, we have been living for the last two decades in a very, very pragmatic world. So whenever, you, you know, we're in a conflict, say, oh, don't go into a conflict. Let's talk to each other. Let's find a compromise. And that brought us to this situation. 
we are in Europe, we, there were a lot of conflicts related to hydropower plants, especially in the 1980s and early 90s. And most of them were successful. And even not only here, but also globally, I would say, the World, the World Bank stopped all the funding in the 90s for, for large-scale hydropower plants. But, but then came the global warming discussion. China stepped into the market in 2000 to build dams and everything changed. Um, but then, you know, every NGO has the right to have a position to speak when, up whenever they want. You feel like you can participate, but most of the time it's a participation trap. Uh, so what I'm, you know, trying to achieve with Riverwatch is uh, we're a small organization. We try to be flexible. We we try to be very clear. We're against these dams. You know, I, I know that there's a lot of open questions I cannot answer. Uh, but no matter what, even if those dams on the Viosa would be valid for the electricity consumption or production in Albania, I would, even though I would always fight against the dams because for me this river is completely unique this is our last we have in europe we have thousands of dams in europe but not such a river anymore so it's in a way it's it's not a pragmatic position we have it's a fundamental position and i think this is very important to have like we were talking about is julia butterfly hill she wasn't pragmatic she was sitting on the tree in the in the redwoods and saying not with me I don't accept that. I know there's a lot of things speaking against me, but I don't do that. And this, this is a, an attitude. We, we need much more. We need much more emotions. We are so much driven by facts and, you know, calculations. And then, uh, you know, all these economical stuff that brought us away from actually what we're, what we are humans. And we are not calibristic people that they are robotters, although, you know, Google and Facebook and all this think we are uh, predictable, but we're not in a way. We should and we should prove that. And we're trying here with this campaign to do something completely idiotic and stop not only one or two or ten dams. We we try to stop three thousand of them. I know we will lose some of them. We will we lose some of the fights, but we will win a lot of fights. And I'm sure we will save a lot of these rivers. And maybe maybe. This is something like the core of a development. When we stop, for example, with the Balkans, as an example, the subsidy system in Europe, that will immediately stop, I would say, up to 10,000 hydropower plants, immediately. If we, we convince the big banks like the World Bank or the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and the European Investment Bank to not fund in dams on the Balkans anymore, if we force them to, they will think twice to invest in other regions. And even bigger NGOs catching up now and saying, hey, maybe that was, we were a bit too pragmatic and a bit too realistic with the hydro. We should go remind ourselves to the 80s and 90s. So I'm not hopeless in this thing. I'm, I have, my hopes are in this campaigning thing. And I hope the Balkans is a good example for me. If we go there and we fight, we have a chance. If if we would deal and argue with the investors and say, make the dam a little bit greener, or let's talk about fish ladders or bypasses, that's rubbish. Then you end up with nothing. But we are saying it's either or, and we're either. I love making the distinction between the pragmatic and the fundamental and how you were explaining this pattern of compromise that we've gotten into as a global culture that you stand for something and you don't waver on that. Just thinking about the fish and and standing for them and standing for these wild rivers and standing for all the creatures and globally dams have contributed to an average freshwater population decline of 81% since 
since 1970, and it's unthinkable to consider how much would be lost as the Balkans are a hotspot for freshwater biodiversity. They harbor 39 endangered species and 69 endemic fish, including the rare Danube salmon and four types of threatened sturgeon. And in the wake of a communist legacy that long viewed ecological science as a threat, the recent comprehensive study on the endangered fish of the understudied watersheds of the Balkans is something to be celebrated. So I'd love if you could tell us a bit more about the study, and I'm really particularly fascinated to hear about the Danube salmon. Yeah, well, we started with the Danube salmon. That is is not a salmon, actually. It's a trout species, the biggest trout in the world. It can grow up to like four feet, five feet, uh, something in length. Uh, it lives in the Danube Basin. It lives in the rivers that run into the basin. It deems oxygen-rich, uh, cool water, and it spawns in gravel. And it was traditionally all over the place. But, you know, as you know, it has been, the population have been reduced and reduced and reduced th- due to uh, pollution of the rivers and then mostly damming. Somebody told me years ago, saying, hey, but on the Balkans, this Danube salmon must, you know, there must be good population, but we have no knowledge about it. We asked scientists to assess the Danube salmon, and it was a very positive uh, result that uh, this species, you know, is, is still widespread on the Balkans. It's actually the last oasis for this species. Uh, but at the same time, there is about more than 90 dams planned inside their territory, and the scientists predict if these dams would be built, about 70% of all the population would collapse. Uh, maybe more because the remaining population would be too small then to survive. But that was an important knowledge because that shook a lot of people and a lot of fishermen that love uh, Huchen because it's a very famous sport fish. Um, and then we did the same with all the other endangered and protected fish. And that is the study we're speaking about. It was recently published and it's, uh, it's really fascinating. There's not only 69 species endemic to the region. That means that they live nowhere else on the planet. But in total, there is about 113 fish species that are endangered and protected. This is the fish hotspot. In Europe, there's fish species that live only in very, very little stretches. You know, there's fish species. One species has been rediscovered in Macedonia in a little river, and they it's believed that there's only a few hundred individuals left. So of this little fish species. And what we did with all the endangered species, so we, we not only assessed where each of these fish species lives. In the Balkans with a map and a little bit of description but also then we we had a look on the dam projects that are being planned inside the territory of each of those fish species and the result of the experts were that um, if the dam tsunami as it is planned would really happen we would lose about 49 fish species um, and that equals about 10% of all fish species in Europe. So, uh, so much about green energy. So this gives us another layer of arguments because fish is slightly more popular than insects, I would say. Uh, we hope that especially people who are interested in fish or angling, that they join our network and get the information about this damn tsunami and then open their voice, uh, sign petition, whatever, help creating a bigger network. So that's the way we're doing it. The Balkans is the fish hotspot. And if the damn tsunami would become reality, that would be history. But I'm sure it won't because we're, we're working on this actually with a lot of, from a, a lot of different angles. And I'm very, very hopeful that we at least can stop the funding of the bigger ones. And I don't know how quick that goes that we stop the subsidies, because a lot of these fish species are threatened not by large-scale dams, but by small dams. That will take some time. But until we are getting there, we we try to um, 
use the legal weapon much more. That is for me something that is the most important for the future, the most important tool within our campaign. We need more money to finance lawyers and legal experts. We have had some successes with this weapon, if you, if you like. We stopped a dam process on the Biosa in Albania. That was, by the way, the first environmental court case in the history of Albania. And we had no chance at the beginning. And then the administrative court, all three judges voted in our favor. In the end, it was a sensation in Albania. So we like to copy paste the strategy for all of the Balkans. I, I'm actually dreaming of a thing that's called a MADA of lawyers. We, we need a whole bunch of, of lawyers that file lawsuits in the countries, write complaints to the European Union, to the Bern Convention about crucial dam projects. We must invest more in these legal weapons. You know, we have to raise awareness, we have to create networks, but this is like soft, uh, this is very soft weapons, you know, use that word again. But actually when, the, when they're going and, and going ahead with the dam projects, you have to fight legally, and that is a good chance. And the very last instrument you have is to block the construction side. And that is what some people do, uh, especially in Bosnia-Herzegovina, that's near Sarajevo, if somebody's heard it. There is right now, there is a community, a very small village, actually, Kružnica. There is especially women blocking a bridge towards the construction site for 220 consecutive days and nights now. They're sitting there and it's cold it's in the mountains, believe me, in the winter it was really cold. And they never give up. An hour away from this Kružnica, there is a village called Foynica. And again, there where the whole village blocked the construction site for more than 300 days and nights. These are little rivers. You can jump across those rivers, so small are they. But the people fight. The last thing you have is to block it. When the, when the construction gets physical, it's the end of writing letters or trying to lobby. You've got to be there. And that is, in some cases, it works. In some countries, like Albania, it, it's not the case, and it's very dangerous. In Albania, in between 2012 and 2016, five people got killed in protests against dams, and one was shot in the head and is still alive. So you're risking a lot uh, in these countries. It's not like you block it in Germany, you know, you don't risk that much. So it, it's a dangerous thing. I'm so grateful for those people who risk their lives, risk their comfort for the protection of these places. And I think it's really interesting, the strategy of using the legal weapons, as, as you said about them, because I think about here in the United States, and, and I know also with the Viosa River, the environmental assessments are completely inadequate. And to be able to understand the language of these environmental assessments, and then be able to communicate and use the wording and the vocabulary and the angles that the companies are using, it seems like legal work and lawyers can really come in and speak directly to the ridiculousness of these assessments, perhaps, and other things to be able to stand like the rights of nature in New Zealand, for instance, how the river was, was given personhood. So the river itself had rights. And I think it's a really interesting yeah. angle to take the legal framework and use the law for the environment. Yes. It is important and that we've done it not enough. Um, but at the same time, that is expensive because the expertise of these people mm -hmm. costs some money. And that's what makes it difficult. And we were so used to raise media attention, you know, historically, because that made a difference. But in these days, it's so difficult because there's so many, so much information out there. Everything is dramatic. And so it's, it's we are dealing with a lot of global information at the same time that was different in the 80s here in austria for example when they blocked the danube construction site for a dam and that was like a revolution when the austrians went to the danube in the winter of 1984 
to block an ongoing construction site because Austrians are very pragmatic people per se. They don't do that normally, but they did that and they stopped it. And 12 years later, this is a national park now. There's no dam. There's a national park instead. And so there, there are good, there are good examples, but you know, not making a long story, but this is important. We need to invest in legal expertise hmm. because as long as we have a functioning ruling system, we must use it. That's a very important card. And uh, one more thing, if you like to see these women of Kruznica, um, you know, this Patagonia film, The Blue Heart, uh, which will be screened Saturday, the premiere, you see them in there. This is one of three stories uh, from the Balkan rivers that shows you this, what I was, I've been talking about. The one is Viosa in Albania, the other one is the Mavrovo National Park in Macedonia. And the third one is the rivers of Bosnia with the story of these women, the brave women of Kruznica. Oh my gosh, so much love and gratitude for those women and all those people. Before, the media had a lot more power because there wasn't social media. There wasn't so much engagement with the internet and Facebook and television and just the influx of information hitting people on the head every day, it's hard to rile people up these days because they're saturated and they're overwhelmed. I think it's really important to have a number of strategies like you're talking about. And I'm wondering with these strategies and with the many campaigns that you're working on and have worked on, how do you navigate the international politics, especially since there are so many countries involved? We're in the position with the European Union. This is the, the, the political tool, the political arm we have to deal with. Even if those countries like Albania, Bosnia, Serbia, uh, Montenegro, they are not part of the Union yet, but they're all candidate uh, countries. So they're all in discussion with the European Union. And the Union should stand for standards. And they have their rules and their legal, their legal rights and rules. And we try to make sure that the European Union and the government of the European Union, which is called Commission, European Commission, they are aware of this problem. Because most of people say, as most of other people would say, I've never heard about that problem. I didn't, I didn't know that there were rivers in, with such, so much beauty and intactness. I didn't know there were so many dam projects. Because with you, you know, this, is, this is also important. You have to make the problem visible. And sometimes the details is not the problem. You have the, the big picture is the important thing. And for us, the big picture was the map with the 3,000 spots on it. Each spot was representing one dam. And suddenly you saw it's like a disease sees, that would, would kill the whole Balkan. That, that is very convincing. So you need these pictures, these images, and then show it to the people, have facts. That's, that's for sure. You need to have all this. But in the end... It's, there is, facts is one thing, but most people are driven by emotions. You need to have the facts that you feel, you know, feel right with your emotions, but it's, we have to create more emotions. Therefore, you need uh, celebrities that give you the voice. You, you need to tell the right stories. Storytelling is something. Very, very often, my community is very good at facts, and then you raise more facts, and then a new study, and it adds more facts. But you, it doesn't bring you any further. Um, and then sometimes, you know, it's so emotional. And you say, wow, you know, I do it. I, I, I know it's probably not the right mindset, but I do it. I go for it. I protect that forest, that reef or that, that river. So for me, it's, it's always a, a good campaign is a good balance between the heart and the brain. And a lot of projects are mainly brainly driven. And then you lose most of the people. That's so true. If facts alone worked, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in right now on so many levels. I mean, just looking at climate change, right. we've had numbers for a long time. We've had facts and scientific data for a long time about the ecological destruction, climate change, carbon emissions, so on and so forth. And that hasn't done much. It, we're actually just getting worse and worse every year. And I think the emotions and intuition and instinct have been sidelined by dominant culture. 
and they haven't been valued and to reclaim that emotions and instinct and intuition actually are quite powerful in how we are alive as humans and how we show up in this world is really beautiful and I think some of the problem being with reaching people is kind of what you were talking about before just the sheer overwhelm of it all what is the direction that people should take you know is it giving up plastic straws is it uh, changing their lifestyle is it not flying on airplanes I mean there's just so many pieces to the equation and then I was thinking about Riverwatch the nonprofit organization that you founded of course you're working on stopping these I think 3,000 dams but you're also interested and in working towards taking down existing dams in addition yeah. like I said to halting the impending hydropower projects so from what I understand there's 4,500 dams that have already been removed in Europe, with 2016 seeing the demolition of the largest dam to date, the Yikla de Yeltas Dam in Spain. So I'm curious to learn more about the actual dam removal process and then what ensues after a river is freed. This number is very big, but this is mostly little wires from old mills. So real hydropower plants have been removed, very few in Europe. There is some, like in the, the one in Spain you mentioned, they're outdated. There are dams without any turbines in it anymore, so that they're removed. Uh, so what the way we were working on this, and we, we tried to um, create a little bit of a movement towards dam removal in Europe, is to actually address the dams that do the most harm and have the less effect on the energy. So there is a lot of these dams out there. Um, just to give you an example, Austria alone, this little country, has 5,200 hydropower plants. We have the highest density globally on dams. And if you remove little wires here and there, that doesn't change it. But it's on the one side, it's every dam that is gone helps rivers. On the other hand, is I think it's a good strategy also to avoid new ones. It's like a football game. You need you need a defense and an offense. And we are basically defending rivers, but we are not attacking the energy communities. And this is also from was from my strategic way of thinking to attack the dams. Make them work against us rather than the rather than working us against them. You know, that was one. Um but you need a very, very long breath in Europe especially. I think even, maybe even more than in the U.S., in countries like Switzerland, um, Austria, Norway, you know, mountainous countries, the dam, the hydropower plant is so deeply rooted in all of us, I would say. It's, it's more than arguments. It's more than electricity. It's something like your character. It's, it's something like it's in you. And when somebody questioned the dam, it seems like you question all the Austrians. <laughs> it's so... Or whenever, when, when I wanted to make an interview, for example, for the climate crimes, and I, went, I interviewed, for example, the energy minister from uh, Brazil because of the Belamonche Dam, and we asked him, where do you want to sit in your office? He immediately chose a position underneath a photo of a big dam. And that happened more than once to us. So people think these monuments are completely sexy or, or whatever. You know? So there's, it's a myth, these dams. Nobody would dare to sit under a picture of a nuclear power plant, not even a coal power plant, but a dam they do. So with this dam removal, we are at the very, very beginning, but the network is growing. And I try to give it a little bit of a political aspect, you know, to fight the, the dams, to, to come up with the, with the numbers and that how senseless most of these dams are and how senseless most of these, you know, from these 5,200 dams in Austria, what do you number? The 4,800 smaller ones produce 3% of the hydroelectricity. 4,800 are completely senseless. If you would take them out, there would be no impact on the Austrian electricity generation. In the European Union, we have the same situation. We have so many dams and most of them are completely senseless, even existing and working hydropower plants, not speaking about remote ones that you could be removed. It will be a marathon um, rather than a sprint, but it's, it's, it's worth it because it's also worth it to protect rivers, like on the Balkans, to become a reservoir or to be, to be diverted. 
So because we attack them, it's, it's, it's actually the same thing from a different side of the metal, I would say. Well, goodness, thank you so much, Ulrich. This has been an incredible conversation. I'm with you. I stand with you. And thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. The music you heard today was by June West. Our theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River from Kate Wolf. I'd like to thank our wonderful podcast team, Andrew Storrs on editing and production, Madison Mogolski, our research extraordinaire, Molly Lebove, our media wizard, and Francesca Glassbell with research assistance. Thank you again, and until next time. See you.